Welcome back to the Extra Milestone, your uh, monthly-ish Cinemaholic spinoff series where we go back in time to talk about the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am your host, as always, Sam Noland, and with me I have uh, one of my dearest friends on this this green and blue earth, uh, the head writer of Cinemaholics, and just all around... uh, hip and happening voice in the in the discourse of cinema it is none other than john negroni john how are you sam nolan don't you dare podcast with anybody else p.s i think i'll be home all day Mm. next (laughs) i don't know what any of that was even remotely about but you know what i'm here for it it's from seven chances the movie we're talking about yeah i uh I do that. Oh, it makes sense now. <laughs> That's the note that well, Listen, I would have just passed you a note and would have made even more sense. But yes, it, it helps that, that th- this is not a silent podcast. As often as I've wanted to try and experiment with that, <laughs> I, I don't think the title wow. cards would work particularly well. Don't wow at me condescendingly, John. I know, I know well, you've thought about it. This- yeah, it's whenever I'm invited. It's like, oh, I wish this was a silent <laughs> podcast and John wouldn't talk. I get it. That's not exactly what I said, but it's pretty close, so I'll take it <laughs> pretty <anyway>. close. Regardless, <laughs> we're going to move right on past that. Yes, this is um, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode of The Extra Milestone. We had announced on our most recent uh, main episode of the show in which uh, Will Ashton, as well as uh, myself, and you, John, you were there too. We talked about Pinocchio. Remember that? That was a fun time. I'd fib, but my nose would hit the microphone. Yes, it was, it was something along those lines. And we had announced at the end of that show that we were going to uh, start doing a little bit of an expansion of the extra milestone. And uh, the way we would be doing that was we would be doing a little bit of a shorter episodes in between the big, long detailed uh, dives into these movies that you and will and i do on a monthly ish basis and uh i'd announced that the first one was going to be myself and adonis gonzalez we were going to talk about the grapes of wrath and terror of mecha godzilla uh and uh we had a variety of scheduling conflicts and that did not uh ultimately pan out in time for this release date i was hoping for so john the courageous heroic gentleman that you are uh you offered to do a a, a little uh a, just a little filler with me and so i think that was I think that was a good idea and wow. that's what that's that's ex- i'm standing by it <laughs> it's just you're just like well i have to do this podcast with somebody by seven o'clock with just some host <laughs> oh i'm not saying oh it's just like i have to and it, it could just be anyone really is what you're telling yeah. me right now yeah yeah storm Jim- off. John is just waiting in the wings at any moment to uh, to to bring up a cheeky reference to the movie we talked about. So it's well, good to you know, know. You gave me a list of movies, and as soon as I saw Seven Chances, I knew, all right, if we're going to do this thing kind of on the fly, it might as well be something that is ripe for conversation. First of all, first silent film we've done on 
extra milestone, which yeah. a little embarrassing when you think about it. We've been doing this for about a year. Yeah. And it, it took until now to do one of the most iconic, you know, film eras, the, the uh-huh. one that started at all. A little sad. Yeah. It's l- the uh, cinema has been around for roughly 120 years, a little bit longer if you want to get technical about it, but sure. roughly 120 years. About 30 of those uh, were all silent, like before sound came in. It took about 30 years for that to happen. So that's a quarter of film history uh, that we've kind of overlooked thus far. And that's not for a lack of trying. We've had multiple silent films on polls over the months. Yeah. Uh, and I, I imagine this will be the first of many, especially now that we're expanding it to include uh, less, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, less iconic titles, maybe a little bit more, sure. a little bit more esoteric, uh, a little bit more, uh, perhaps, perhaps I don't want to use the word alien, but just not as not quite as familiar to the general public. As, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't, yeah, we shouldn't sugarcoat it, Sam. Like yeah. our listeners, a lot of them. They're probably not that into silent films. They probably haven't seen that many. And, you know, I don't want to make them feel bad for that because, like, I get it. Silent Mm -hmm. films are a hard medium to get used to when you grow up on sound and color. And it it is a bit of a leap. However, I, I want to invite the listeners who are newcomers to silent film or relatively inexperienced to give this a shot because I think that there is so much value to be gained from this from this chapter in film history. And I think a lot of people who maybe turn their noses to films like this, because they're, they're just assume yes. they, they wouldn't get anything out of it. Oh, it's, it's too old. It's, it's too old fashioned. They, in my opinion, are really missing out. And yes. I, I just say, give it a shot. I get it. It's not Charlie Chaplin. We're getting into, which I think is most people's introduction to silent film. However, we yeah. are getting into one of the absolute greats. So please stay on this dial. Yeah, yeah. Buster Keaton is, uh, and and this is not meant as a as a diminishing description to either of these gentlemen, but he's kind of the other Charlie Chaplin that people talk about. You know, it's always those those are the big two, and I think it's I think it's important that you bring up uh, how silent cinema is not exactly in everyone's wheelhouse, at least not necessarily. And I think um, a lot of that, a lot of a lot of um, when it comes to trying to introduce the silent era to someone, a lot of it comes down to where do you start? You know, there's, there are a lot of places not to start when it comes to silent cinema. For instance, man with a movie camera is not the movie to dive into silent cinema with. That's uh, incredibly abstract, uh, incredibly based in theory. It, it is just not the thing to get you jazzed about what else the, the, uh, the art form has to hold. However, the, Silent comedies, I think, are kind of the way to go. It's the way that I, I was agree. introduced to silent cinema, and of course, because they're they're broadly entertaining, they're uh, mostly visual. A lot of them don't really have to do with the plot, and I think Seven Chances certainly applies. Yeah, a it's, lot of them are under an hour. Yeah, this this one is uh, is fifty seven minutes, um, and I know because I just finished watching it not not thirty minutes before we started recording this podcast. I finished seven seven chances, so that gives you an idea of how uh, how on the fly this is going to be. And for once, and for one, I should say, I'm really excited about it. So uh, I am too. Yeah, John. What say we talk about Buster Keaton's Seven Chances? I, and you know what? We should start with saying that uh, you, you didn't say it enough. I think Buster Keaton was a total genius. Uh, yes. If you are unaware of his filmmaking career. He was, uh, I think Roger Ebert said that he was is probably the greatest actor director who ever lived. 
Uh, Orson Welles called him the greatest of clowns. Yep. Uh, Orson Welles in particular was really inspired by Buster Keaton in the same way that he acted in a lot of his films and did some of his own stunts. Buster Keaton not only did his stunts, he did a lot of other people's stunts. <laughs> when you watch it, when you watch a Keaton film, it's undeniable, especially if you're watching it after, you know, if you're a little bit older, if you've gone through many other films, you see, oh my word, everyone under the sun rips this guy off from Wes Anderson to Tarantino to just everybody who plays around with uh, visual jokes where the camera is the only thing the characters see and puts them on the same level as the audience. That kind of visual comedy was more or less invented by Buster Keaton through his feature films, through his shorts. And I get, yeah, if you want to start with silent films, you just look at any of the films that Keaton made between uh, 1920 and then I want to say like 1929. I think that yeah. was like the last year before he signed with MGM. And yeah. he only did like one more really good film after that. And then his career kind of, pla- you know, plateaued from there. Yeah, it, it didn't necessarily take a huge dive, but that was really the, the 20s were the heyday of Buster Keaton. Yes. Uh, and and even going a little bit further back into like the late 1910s, he has some really fantastic shorts, uh, many of them produced in collaboration with right. uh, comedian Roscoe Arbuckle, who had yeah. who had a hand in uh, the production of this film as well. And yeah, Buster Keaton was really was uh, for one thing is most iconic for having what is often called the great stone face in comedy. His secret talent was being able to undergo any sort of just utterly bizarre uh, uh, situation and appear to be not phased by it whatsoever. And yet his actions are reacting to it, but he's not making any sort of wacky faces. He's not, uh, he's not just stating particularly much, even though he's, he's moving a lot. Uh, It makes it 10 times funnier. And that's why whenever I think of, uh, who some of the funniest movie stars are, Buster Keaton comes up first because Buster Keaton does not have to do anything to be funny. That's the magic of this face that this guy has. He just has to sit in a chair and sort of, he could just sort of uh, uh, quickly like dart his eyes around the room and I'm dying laughing. I was, as I was rewatching this movie, I had forgotten so many of the specific jokes uh, that made me laugh the first time. And getting to relive them once again was was utterly delightful. And so I was glad yeah. to be. And this is true for literally any of his movies. Like I can, there are ones that I like more than others, obviously, but I cannot think of a single one that is not at least worthwhile in some way or another. I think this one's special because it's it's right in the middle of I think his auteur decade because. It really was in the 1920s that he was doing his own films. He was working with the same crew and he was doing bigger and better stunts. Uh, I wish we had more time. We could talk about The General and Go West and yep. Our Hospitality and all of these films that really mark a lot of Buster Keaton's different strengths. I think yep. Steamboat Bill Jr. is where a lot of people might recognize some of the more infamous, the infamous house shot, which I think is probably his like, I don't know. I, do you want to say that's his most iconic um, uh, there, there are a few things that are most iconic. I think that's certainly the most, uh, the one that took hold the most when it came to yeah. inspiring others. If you've ever seen a shot, this is what we're referring to. If you've ever seen a shot where like a building or the wall of a building or just a, some sort of structure, uh, l- looks like it's about to fall on someone, be- but because of the, the way a window or an opening on that wall is very st- uh, specifically placed they're completely unharmed that comes yeah. from buster keaton that comes from the movie That's steamboat him. bill jr uh there's this big hurricane and uh the wall of a house falls down but buster keaton's completely unharmed because he's standing right where the window and they was. did that one shot didn't rehearse it 
Yep. They just went for it. He had pure confidence in his ability to make that scene work. And yeah. so they didn't even plan to do no other to do another shot of it. And like, um, I think what's great about Buster Keaton in general and um, from Seven Chances onward is like these films are like the precursor to the indie comedy as we know it. These mm. like comedies that are built on really small budgets and yeah. they still work. And one of the reasons like it, it is amazing how they were able to shoot some of these scenes. Like uh, there's a scene in uh, the general where a train just like collapses into it. When you look at the budget for that movie and it's like, (laughs) how did they put the reason they were able to pull these things off is because they didn't have to pay for extra stuntmen. They didn't like if a scene went wrong, uh, especially in, in seven chances, if they did something in like uh, if he misses or if he like gets hurt or whatever, they keep going and, or they like, they include that into the plot and uh including the famous boulder scene so uh, improv comedy as we know it is like also really um benefited by buster keaton's work and his contribution to cinema yeah and i want to make and one thing i want to make very clear is that this was not without consequence buster keaton's insane uh skills as a stuntman it did not always go perfectly right. They did a lot of the times, and that's the thing that's so fascinating about it. But Buster, Ke- uh, Buster Keaton sustained a lot of injuries on the set of movies. Uh, uh, case in point, on the set of Sherlock Jr., which I would argue is possibly his most iconic um movie uh that's the one where he literally steps out of a movie screen and that was the first time that that kind of cinematic self-awareness was done but there's a scene earlier in the movie where uh buster keaton is hanging on to and i forget the exact name of this device but it's what uh it's like a big silo that pumps water into a train car uh as it drives by he was hanging from that spout and the water was going to come out and just sort of lightly spray him and and uh and he was going to fall to the ground apparently the water came out way harder than they thought it would like at a much greater uh a much greater force and it just pummeled him to the ground and there, of course, there was a train track below because that's where the train goes. And Buster Keaton landed on that in such a way that he broke his neck. Yeah. And they oh kept that in the movie. You can actually see it happen. And uh, as a result of that, he sustained migraine headaches for the rest of his life that he had never had before. And uh, that's if you've ever had one, you know how miserable it is. And the funny thing is that he didn't even know that it was broken until years later. Like he was able to shrug it off in just such a way that like scar tissue formed around it. And years later, a doctor said, uh, Buster, you're a, your neck is broken <laughs> and it has been for some time now. And that, that just that kind of devotion, I, I don't, I don't condone it like, like specifically or anything like that, but it just, it just shows how, uh, how committed he was to being being the best of the best essentially. And he really kind of was when it, when it came to this very specific kind of comedy. Uh, And I think seven chances is a really, um, is a really good showing of that, which is funny because as I was doing uh, some very quick bits of research in preparation for this, I found out that Buster was not especially gung ho about this movie, which is no, very, he he was actually uh, tricked into doing this movie so uh you may know that uh so so his real name is joseph frank keaton and you might have heard of um his often producer joseph m shank they were both married to uh the tamage sisters and so that was kind of they were in-laws 
And uh, Shank was a little, if I if I'm recalling the story correctly, Shank was a little mad with Keaton because he had spent something like twenty five thousand dollars on a certain scene, yep. and so as a form of implied revenge, he acquired <laughs> the rights to a very like whatever mediocre stage play from a decade yeah. prior. Uh, I forget the name of the stage play, but it's essentially oh, the gosh. basis for this movie. And I have it right somehow here. Buster Keaton turned this situation into one of his best comedies. I mean, it's 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 as Orson Welles would put it, right? Uh, one of those happy accidents of filmmaking because yeah. it actually worked out pretty well. Well, uh, I will say it's based on the stage play to some extent. It's also based on um, a couple of short films that has sort of the same premise of somebody trying to get married at it before a deadline. It's yeah. not a super original concept, but obviously they made it their own. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just just to lay out the basic plot line um, for anyone who maybe hasn't seen this movie or it's been a while. uh, What happens is that Buster Keaton is, uh, along with his partner, uh, whose character's name I I can't remember offhand, but they are stockbrokers and they're in a firm together. And yeah, so the, the name of the firm is uh, Meekin and Shannon. His partner is Billy Meekin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Played by uh, T. Roy Barnes. Yeah. Not not too shabby there, and uh, yeah, and they've got they've gotten themselves in a bit of in a uh, in a bit of debt, and they're not quite sure how to pay it off. But lo and behold, uh, Shannon Buster Keaton's character has just inherited seven million dollars from some sort of deceased relative, but for whatever reason, under the stipulation that he get married by seven o'clock on his twenty seventh birthday. So I guess this relative just had a thing for the number seven. And, right, exactly. Uh, Which, by well, the way, uh, the seven million dollars in nineteen twenty-five, oh, I think, yeah. would be uh, over a hundred million dollars by today's yeah. standards. So, yeah, uh, quite a bit of a sum. Yeah, it was funny as I was rewatching this. Uh, they actually they play coy about the actual amount for a little while, and for a moment, I was thinking uh, that they were going to do something actually really clever by by sort of hiding the amount because they knew obviously that money wouldn't wouldn't have the same value forever. So I thought they were not going to specify the amount and it would just be shown by their reaction. But then when 7 million came on screen on the inner title, I think I did like a double or maybe a triple yeah, take yeah. because that's, that's really ludicrous to think about that. This is back at the time when admission to the movies was like a nickel. So imagine how much $7 million is. And, uh, and, and I think it's, it's really effective the way they do that. But what happens is that Buster Keaton, who just so happens to be in love, uh, with, uh, with this woman, uh, just, yeah, Mary, he has to marry Mary. And I, by the way, opening montage, just wonderful. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite openings to a silent film, but, uh, we didn't really get into this before, but did you watch the color version of this? I did not. I actually, I watched the black and white version. Okay, because there are two versions. They restored um, the film reels and including like uh, complementing it with Robert Israel's music uh, like, you know, decades and decades later uh, because this is one of those films that I think was almost lost forever, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. And the fact that you can't, you can't watch it in color. The version that I watched, like the opening montage is like a lot of different like technicolors, just yeah. the opening scenes. And then the rest of the film has like an amber tint that is pretty distinct and it's it's actually really cool i i would recommend checking that out as well sam because i've seen both versions and i actually rec- i do prefer the amber tint because mm. the detail is really good the only downside is that 
it's a little bit more noticeable all the makeup and stuff on Keaton's face. Really? <laughs> um on, on also on uh the uh the lawyer um played by Snitz Edwards. Like yeah. you can see the caked on makeup. It's kind of <laughs> weird. Um but it's still really good. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, that's funny. You know, come to think of it, uh I as I recall during that opening montage, I did notice some different color tinting but that's not something that necessarily warrants uh like having a color version so i might i might actually have seen the color version and just not realized it uh i wouldn't know whatever version is on uh is available for rent on amazon prime which by the way i found out that uh a lot of movies a lot of silent movies just because of how old they are uh have sort of lapsed into the public domain and so most of the silent cinema at least that still exists um and we'll talk about that in a second uh, is is relatively easy to find. Um, it's most of it is in the public domain. And you can watch it for free. Uh, Notes for you can find it on, uh, You can find it on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, you can find it through. I think Criterion has Seven Chances. Um, Kino International has a special edition DVD you can yeah. get of this. And I actually I watched it on Amazon Prime Video. You can watch it through the uh, the Cohen Media Group channel. Oh, okay. um, so there, there's a bunch of different avenues. It's it just depends on how you want to see it. If you want to see the original black and white or the color, I think both versions are available for free on YouTube. I don't know yeah. if that's the best quality necessarily, but you can definitely access it that way. Yeah, Qual- quality doesn't phase me as much, so I guess I wasn't paying attention to that. Um, but yeah, and, and also uh, the Internet Archive is a good uh, website for uh, for uh, films and TV that are in the public domain. So that is a good source as well. And yeah, we briefly mentioned this, but um, this movie was almost lost, and it was only because they had they just happened upon one of the original prints that was just laying around somewhere, and they were able to save it. But uh, one of my college professors. Um, uh, Howie Moshevitz, Moshevitz, I should say, a very famous uh, archivist, as a matter of fact. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't uh, just terrified of how of uh, how important of a guy he is, I've I've actually thought about inviting him onto this podcast. But uh, he had told me one time that about ninety percent, at a minimum, of all of silent cinema is lost forever. Which is insane to think about, just how yeah, much really sad. how much still exists. To think that ten times that once existed uh, is is really is really melancholy to think about. And it was just that's mostly just because of the way that a uh, silent movie was thought about. They weren't they weren't really giving a lot of mind to archiving film as an art form, like for posterity, they would sort of just produce it and they would use it. And then they would just sort of discard it. Like it's, it's frankly kind of amazing that as much has survived as it has with that. Think think of it this way. So people listening, if you're, if you're like, I I can't even fathom that, like why wouldn't people think of it the way that we handle memes? I know it's kind of silly, but the idea of like people, even though people are sharing tons of these memes around, we don't think of them as culturally important and we probably never will. Right. But it's, yeah. it's only like the really famous ones that really like, you know, survive. And mm-hmm. then the rest just sort of disappear forever, you know? And it, it is a very different thing. But if you're curious, like how that could possibly happen, that's like the same mentality as like you share a meme for a quick laugh. You don't think that it's going to be, you know, something that you want to remember for later. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to think about it. I think just, uh, especially when it comes to just the, just the sort of disposability that we kind of look at a lot of memes uh, this way. And there's, and there's certainly, there's no reason not to like, it's nothing 
that seems especially consequential. But yeah, I imagine I imagine there might be something uh, along these lines that years from now we're going to think, man, where was that one meme I saw back in the year 2016? Right. I Where's guess I'll vine? never see it again. <laughs> there are yeah, some but, vines that I missed that were so fun and I, yes. I, I can't find them anymore. Oh my um, gosh, I've, I've had the exact same experience where I try to, I type in just the most bizarre keywords I could think of just to hope that it might possibly come up somehow. And uh, right. that, that's the kind of thing we're dealing with here. So the fact so that if it's, if it's hard even today for something like that with the resource of the internet, imagine you know yeah. in the early 20th century how difficult it would be to like save these copies or have them readily on hand, and um, all kinds of things happened over the years, like storms and fires, and oh yeah, these things were really delicate. And uh, we're we're lucky we have what we have, and it's unfortunate what we don't have. But seven chances is something we do have, and that is. Yes. Very fortunate for us. It absolutely is something that we have. So the story goes apace. And uh, as you mentioned, Buster Keaton just happens to be functionally betrothed to Mary. Like that's kind of the sense, like that's kind of the vibe I get. Um, and so he they're rushes sweethearts. home. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're sweethearts. And I think th- there's this really funny bit where the, uh, the uh, what I assume is like the executor of the will or whatever, shows up at their uh, firm is trying to deliver the letter and they Buster Keaton and, uh, and, uh, it's Meekin, right? Meekin. Yeah. Yeah. Meekin and Shannon, they see that someone's delivering a letter. They're like, Oh gosh, this oh, isn't yeah, going to be yeah. good. What could it be? They, <laughs> try to, they try to flee the scene and the guy is like chasing yeah. after them goes, gets to like a country club eventually. I oh, think. but before that, in the scene where they drive off in the car, uh, I, I was thinking it's like, that's what my, how Will Ashton must feel. It's like you and I just get in the car. <laughs> And not to do an extra milestone. And Lashin's like, well, hey, I love Buster Keaton. Oh, God. steals a cap. We love you, Will. Do not get any wrong ideas. Um, but yeah, regardless, uh, they they eventually, like, the, the, the executive of the Will literally has to unfold it and, like, press it against a window outside of the building where they're trying to flee from, the, from what they assume is some sort of uh, financial charge. The guy gets escorted away from the police and then they're like, hold on a second. There's no need for that kind of behavior around here. Like they're. Yeah. And it lingers on the cop. Just the cop just like stares at them for a second. (laughs) It's like, it's like he's disappointed. He doesn't get to arrest somebody. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Hey, maybe someday, but not today as they say. And, uh, and yeah, so they, they realize like, Oh, well, it's uh have to be married by seven o'clock on your 27th birthday. Well, when's your 27th birthday? And because of course it is, it's today. And so yeah. he's Which, gotta- by the way, I, I think like the idea of these guys being in financial ruin, it does make a lot of sense that they like skip out to go to a country club in the middle of a work day. Of course. <laughs> and, like, right. And you? So like, uh, I mean, if if my uh, if my law firm was uh, on the brink of going <laughs> under, I think I'd have better priorities. But all right, there are a lot of weird plot contrivances in this movie that are kind of distracting, but also a lot of fun. Especially when you know yeah. just how disapproving Buster Keaton was of this story, you can kind of see why. It's like it's a it's a bit of a dumb story, so I can see why Buster Keaton was not wholly enthusiastic. But the fact that he's still uh, that he still brought his all to it and made it something something quite enjoyable is impressive, uh, to say the least. And so Buster Keaton goes back home and uh, says to his wife, says, hey, want to get married? And she's like, oh. You called it her, no, she's not his wife. 
or did I say just, yeah okay so I, it, I there's three, like and we should say like the movie kind of opens with them as like he he just can't express himself to her like he loves her and she loves him but he doesn't know how to make it happen you know like yeah. he doesn't know how the only times he's able to express his emotions because he's like stunted emotionally is uh-huh. when she's not there and so like that yeah. happens like multiple times in the movie and it it played for laughs and it, i think it's pretty funny yeah and uh that sort of sort of like you know meekness and not being able to express himself that's actually a common trope in a lot of buster keaton stories a lot of them are kind of grounded in that sort of that sort of recognizable drama that we've all seen or experienced in one way or another so that's certainly uh not out of place here and that is the funny part where uh he's trying to like get up the gumption like all right my uh, my heart exists only for you. No, that's bad. That's bad. Uh, let's Maybe see. Let's Mary see. might marry me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's he's like rehearsing his speech that he's going to give. And yeah. what Which, ends up one happening- of my favorite little moments of his acting in the movie is just like all his shifting. And like it's just it's yeah. so great. You don't need any title cards like we didn't mention this, but uh, <laughs> Keaton hated using two. He didn't like relying on title cards. I think most films of the era, even ones around the same length, would use over like 200 in one movie oh, yeah. and he would keep it to 50 or below something like in that range. Yeah, let let the story speak for itself. I like it. And it's very makes for a, a, a really engaging movies because I find that as, as big of a fan of silent cinema as I am, uh, the title cards do kind of like they can kind of amount really quickly. It's sort of the modern day equivalent of a movie just loaded with exposition because that's really oh, yes. what it is. Um, and so what happens is that, yeah, he's doing all that shifting, which only which Buster Keaton just makes the funniest thing ever and doesn't realize that she's there and is practicing one of these lines and uh, and then notices. Like, oh, hey, Mary. Hey. Uh, oh, lovely day. Huh? Like, that's just the vibe I get from the scene. And uh, and uh, oh, gosh, I'm so bad at remembering plots. Is she like is she like a little hesitant well, about it? Is that what happened? Well, yeah. So. And, and I do want to say what one of my favorite things about watching silent films is I don't know if you like to do this, but I recommend doing this if you maybe if you want a way to like interact a little bit. I love reading the title cards and funny voices. Um, <laughs> so like kind of what you said there of like, oh, that's the vibe I get. I love playing around with like the movie that way. Like unlike other films, one of the advantages with silent ones is there is like a bit of an interactive format. It's like reading a book where you get to put your imagination into it a little bit more and you get to imagine what they're saying. And I don't know, like, I think that that was one of the things I love. I love doing in these like silent film comedies when I was a little bit younger. And, you know, it's just fun. It's just good fun to do that. And in this scene in particular, uh, he it's so funny the way he like falls over his words because he's like, well, we have to get married today. And she's like, wait, why today? And he's like. Well, I just have to marry somebody so I can get a bunch of money. And like, that's how it comes across. Yeah. And she's just like, oh, he thought he just wanted to marry. Like, it could have been anybody. And like, she doesn't feel special. And uh, it's just it's funny because the movie does have like an arc. You do sort of understand by the end of the movie, not to give anything away yet, that there is a reason he wants this money. And it's not purely for selfish reasons. Yes. And that was something that I thought was like, I don't know, it was, was kind of really, I don't know. I thought it was nice. No, it is nice. Yeah, it's 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 good to see that these characters are are very well meaning, even though they do indeed come across as being rather callous at times. Uh, 
And uh, yeah, so basically, I, I, I love that idea, by the way, of adding uh, silly voices, because as you and I'm sure a lot of listeners know, I am an impressionist. So I can imagine the fun times I'd had, although I wouldn't recommend adding funny voices to say the passion of Joan of Arc. I don't think that necessarily. Right. Works. I don't think that quite works. Also, you know, after right after the scene, we should say blackface. Yeah. Um, yeah What's up with that? Forgot. Which is weird because there are actual African-Americans in this movie. Yeah. And for whatever reason, like the one character who actually does have some agency is in blackface. Uh, and that's something you kind of have to roll with. I'm not the kind of person I understand we've been dealing very recently. I feel like every time we do extra milestones, something else has happened with Gone with the Wind. It's yeah. like a weird like recurring theme. Um <laughs> But there is this like mentality that we have to sort of like erase movies in order to pretend like they didn't happen. I say no to that. Like, let those movies exist and stay there so we can actually watch them and understand that's what life was like back then. They had no problem with that sort of thing. And I think that it's uh, it's one thing to celebrate the film for that or to just sort of ignore it and dismiss it. It's another thing to appreciate the film on its own terms and start to think deeply about why was that acceptable back then? And like, why why did they why was it so uncomfortable for them to even fathom like an African-American, a black character in a movie being portrayed authentically, like the one character who has lines, for example. So just worth thinking about um, if you like historically, I think it's important. Yeah, no, it's absolutely important. I think it's it's when it comes to uh, not erasing these movies, I definitely concur wholeheartedly. Although I do think it is important uh, when appropriate to establish context, to not just sort of present it in a vacuum uh, without saying like, hey, so by the way, there's some messed up stuff in this movie. So that's like, just keep that in mind and either take it or leave it totally understand either way i think that is that is a valuable thing right uh, and it's also valid to look at this moment and and criticize it for that reason because it is it's jarring it takes you out of it it doesn't age very well and it's you know it doesn't take away from other aspects of this film that i think are timeless and wonderful but you know it's it's not a bad thing to be like man like it kind of sucks that movies uh use this trope so readily back then and and clearly there was no sort of like cultural backlash to speak of as far as we know yeah like there's like I just I just wish I could poke my head into the screen and be like, hey, no reason to do that. Just so you know, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm from the future, but I don't need to be from the future to tell you that. So it's it's very distracting. And I was going to bring that up. And so it is something that if that's like if if you draw a line there, then, yeah, I totally get it. Uh, it's just it's just a thing and as much as we want to say it was a different time, uh, certainly not acceptable for any time. But yeah, that is that is a thing. It's distracting, but I I hate to just brush it off with like, what are you going to do? But that's kind of that's kind of the point we're at right now is just understanding that they were not they just didn't get it, you know. Very true, very true. And yeah. speaking of not getting it. Uh, so he gets broken up with, and what I thought, you know, like kind of rewatching this and trying to think of it a little bit more critically than I have before. It is a little weird that he doesn't even try to salvage the relationship as soon as yeah. she rejects him. He just pieces yeah. out. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> like, like, just explain to her yeah. everything that happened. Say, listen, I love you very much. I don't necessarily want to marry you today. Just, just like for no reason or whatever. Uh, but I need this money and I'm sure both of us will benefit very heavily from this. Uh, 
Like that, like there, movie done. But because it's a comedy, that's right. not the way th- things work out. A, as a matter of he fact, has a foible. he has a foible. As a, everything, at nearly every turn, everything goes wrong. Something's misinterpreted. Uh, something doesn't go according to plan, or something just really effing weird happens and that's what it's most enjoyable uh because what happens is that he goes to uh like a a, what is it like a saloon or something just just sort of a just sort of a social uh place of gathering where a lot of people might might be the country club again i wasn't sure because the building is similar so it could be that could maybe not i'm not sure they look similar and they've got a lady there like, you know, taking people's hats and taking care of them. So it seems like a country club kind of environment. So that's a, that's a reasonable assumption. Uh, they go there, they look out at the crowd and uh, it, it's either Meekin or the lawyer. I forget exactly who says to, says to James Shannon, Buster Keaton. All right. How many of these women do you know? He counts, he writes down their names. I know seven of them. It's like, all right, you have seven chances to, <laughs> to find a bride in the next several hours. And so Buster Keaton, and and I remember this being very amusing to me the first time as well as this time, goes through all of them really fast, like just blows his chance seven times in a row. Now, not that it's an easy thing. They get really creative. Now, not that it's an easy thing to just, out of the blue demand marriage and have it work out. But just well, the, even in 1925 though, right. Where I think yeah. that was a, that was a bit more acceptable or it was like a little bit more like that could happen or yeah. plausible, I should say compared yeah. to today. But Maybe yeah, so. even so like these women laugh in his face and uh, <laughs> it's, it's just funny how like each situation is like, there's a new like wrinkle or there's a new twist on it. And like, even my favorite one was when, um, Meekin, uh, <laughs> makes her think that he's the one who's proposing. And it's just like, you see it coming. It's classic comedy, but it, it's still so satisfying when yeah. she looks over and, and he's like, Oh, I'm proposing for him. And it's, it's the lawyer the, giving the, the creepiest has- smile. Yeah, the, which there's no reason to smile creepily either. Like you're just, you're just, yeah. you have no reason to be here. You're just hanging out. Why are you, why are you making eyes at this lady? So it's, it's extra funny because of that. One of my favorites is when uh, he sees one of them start to walk up this flight of stairs, follows her up the stairs. By the time they get to the top of the stairs, he's been rejected. And so, and right at that moment, he sees yeah. another woman walking down the stairs and he's like, Let's go for it again. Oh, <laughs> well, he's in a hurry. See? Yeah. The the <laughs> funniest one though. And this, I, I almost, if I wasn't so pressed for time, I would have paused the movie because I was laughing so hard is the hat check lady. The way that she's been just like, you can tell she's been yeah. watching what Buster Keaton has been doing this whole time. Wondering what the hell is this guy up to? Yeah, yeah. And when he gets his hat back, like gives her a, a dime or whatever. And, uh, gives her this look and she just shakes her head. No, Mm-mm. it's not going to work yeah, yeah. out. But even that, I really like right before that though, where like the baby, he doesn't, he doesn't give up <laughs> right when he sees that she has a baby. He's just sort of like yours. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, the timing of it. Like I, I gotta tell you, Sam, I think I laughed more during this movie than I think. I don't think I've laughed this much during an extra milestone since probably some like it hot. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I think that's the case. Yeah, and that and that's one of the funniest movies ever made. So that's certainly saying something. I, I and in that scene, he's like, "Is that baby yours?" She's like, "Yes." And then he, and I, I just love the way this question is worded. You're going to raise it? Are you interested in raising it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. 
it is so funny and it's 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 so effortless in just the way that this zany situation in in especially given like just the uh the amount of words like again we mentioned the the sparse use of title cards and as a matter of fact like past a certain point in this movie it's almost entirely uh visual like there are there like there isn't a title card for quite some time in the climax of this yeah. movie uh but yeah so none of that works out uh buster keaton decides well shoot i know what i'll do i'll take out an ad in the paper because apparently that's all he could think to do at this point that's uh, Meekin's per- plan that's Meekin's plan. Actually, no, we skipped a part, which is yeah, interesting to watch today. Uh, <laughs> I, I was gonna, I was talking, I was thinking of something differently. I was thinking of the part where he he walks past uh, what seems to be like some sort of a brothel or something like that. Uh, oh, sees a poster, path. yeah, yeah, and goes in. He sees a poster with a woman on it. Goes yeah. in past this like shifty doorman, uh, oh, and right at. That. Right after Buster Keaton walks in, uh, the doorbell gets up and like moves something out of the way of the poster, and it turns out that it's and and this is the exact wording from from uh, uh, IMDb, so I apologize for this, but a female impersonator, so essentially yeah. uh, like a crossdresser functionally, uh, and walks out. It's you know it's it's different to watch today. I can see why it would be kind of funny, just that little reversal, but it's it seems like there might be a little bit of yeah uh, of contemptoring that way and then right after that, in another moment, which is just just extremely casually racist and is just really hard to watch oh, now not even it is it is explicitly anti-Semitic. It is yeah. extremely racist, yeah. and we we skipped over the part where he try he almost marries a girl who's implied to be like a young teenager, but he doesn't realize it. Oh, really? I missed that. What happened? Well, so remember the the girl who's like, "Oh, do you think anyone would marry me?" And he goes off with her. Then all the women who've rejected him kind of like laugh because her mother comes, grabs her, and puts a doll in her. Oh. Okay, so point, I I totally missed the subtext of that scene. Yes, you're right. absolutely right. She's supposed to be like way too young apparently like and since back then you could get married at like 17 16 she's probably even younger than that so there's yeah. like clear pedophile like not not that he assumed um that the movie doesn't really infer that like you think that he's a, pedo- a pedophile but it's just yeah. sort of making light of that sort of thing but then yeah. also yeah i mean he he runs into a woman who is jewish and then he immediately is like well i can't marry somebody who's jewish uh-huh. you know, right and it's like i can't marry someone who's black it's just like this very like explicit you know product of its time yeah. i guess we should i would say this is easily the weakest part of the, the whole movie because it, it does that joke over and over again it's really uncomfortable mm-hmm. it definitely saves itself eventually because <laughs> you get to the stuff that's much more uh rewarding and satisfying but yeah you really have to sit through some annoying dated stuff here yeah and it's frustrating or frustrating is the wrong word but it's just it's troubling because it's not like it really lingers on it in any way that implies hate. So it's impossible to tell like what their attitude is towards it. Cause it doesn't, it doesn't in air quotes seem hateful, but of course that may be the most insidious part of it all. So it is, it's a lot of uncomfortable stuff that uh, is just there. God damn it. Like what it, like, it is, it is just sort of indicative. Yeah, it's indicative of like what was played for humor back then. Mm-hmm. And again, there is a time and place where we can acknowledge that and look at it and understand it and analyze it. We don't have to act like it's the end of the world, like it's some big surprise that people 
like had really racist views of romance in the 1910s. We know, right? Yeah, we like, know. There's no reason for us to, to play coy. Um, it's just, it, it, I think it's frustrating because it's like, I want to enjoy this movie. Like, get, get, just just stop with this stuff. I don't like this stuff. Then we then we get to like what I think is the best part of this whole yes. movie, which is the third act. The third act yes. is one of my favorite third acts <laughs> in any of the films of the silent era and beyond. It's just yeah, absolutely pure cinematic wonder <laughs> like and, and, and the fact the fact that it's not even the best third act of buster keaton's career is yeah that's true fantastic I guess. like like any comedian or or any uh i guess comedic movie star whatever you want to call it who had who pulled off this sequence or like the today's equivalent of the sequence they yeah. would be proud of that for the rest of their life and the he fact knew that how to end a movie Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, and as the story goes, this was what ultimately convinced him uh, that the movie was worth doing, despite how uh, just sort of just sort of thin and not really there the story was. But but we'll get to that eventually. So what happens, as I mentioned earlier, is they do take an ad out of the paper. They're saying this man needs a bride. James Shannon falls heir to seven million dollars if married by the end of the day, and says. Any like what, what does it say? Any bride who shows up at this church at seven will be our lucky winner tonight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the most unique wills ever filed for probate. Like <laughs> I wrote that down. It? Okay. Yeah, it did. I, I just I think it's so hilarious too the idea that they would be able to like Meekin would be able to within a couple of hours or so print a wanted ad and yeah. and enough people would see it. Like where did he get the photo? I mean, well, I, I assume they have a photo of of James oh, Shannon at the ready. Sure. <laughs> no, that's not that's not an unreasonable thing to assume. They're a law firm; they? they probably have that. Okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. I yeah. I do want to say, by the way, um, you know, I mentioned Thomas Rory Barnes, who plays Meekin. Um, I I didn't want to. Say, I, I I've been like curious about the suit. So I haven't seen him in a lot of movies, but it does dawn on me that he was he was off known as T. Roy Barnes, which is Troy Barnes. So is that where Dan Harmon got the idea for Donald Glover's character in Community, or is that just a huge coincidence? You know, it's very possible. There, there are there are a lot of cult, of uh, cultural references that just come from the weirdest places you would never assume. So that is entirely within the realm of possibility. I mean, I I follow Dan Harmon on a lot of things. I guess I've never really caught whether or not he's a big fan of Buster Keaton. I assume he probably is because who isn't? But yeah, right. That's a dangling thread I'm going to put out there. Very interesting. Yes, if anyone happens to know, John would John would very much like to find out. So, uh, yeah, they take an ad out on a paper. Jo- uh, Buster Keaton is waiting at the church, this completely empty church, and it's been a long day. He's been through a lot. Uh, he doesn't know what his immediate immediate future is going to look like. You can tell he's very tired, so he lays down on the church pew and goes to sleep. At that very moment, it starts with one. And then it increases to like five and just one by one, hundreds of women in bridal gowns start filing into the church. <laughs> and and uh, eventually the entire place is packed. Uh, one of them comes down, comes in, sits down next to Buster Keaton, which kind of wakes him up a little bit. He's like, oh, hey, a bride's here. Very nice. Another one comes down, sits on the other side. Oh, there's two of them. Oh, goodness. Which, I'm going to have to. By the way, she's. She's wearing a wedding ring for some reason. So. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's funny. I did. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, you cheater. 
Listen, there, there's a cynical way to look at it that it was the the mention of money that got them all there. Uh, that's, I think it, that's what it is. <laughs> it's not an it's not an unreasonable thing. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, he start he realizes like, oh, there's two of them here. Uh, I'm gonna have to choose between them, and then turns around and sees just a sea of brides awaiting his selection, and. Uh, I, I like to think that in this moment, Buster Keaton thinks he's in some sort of bizarre dream right now. Like he doesn't think this is real. He thinks, Oh my gosh, I am having the weirdest dream right now. And then uh, for, for whatever reason, or I guess, I guess it kind of makes sense. Just flees the scene. <laughs> like the, the priest comes out, sees all these brides and is like, yeah, I'm not doing that. You f- you figure that out. Right. I- well, I think yeah, I think they realize they they get the idea that it was a practical joke and that he did all of this to fool them. Uh-huh. And it's just it's a really good dramatic irony because he goes from nobody will marry him to too many people will marry him. Yeah. And what begins is this frantic chase that's about like what is it like 15 20 minutes long so it's a third of the movie I think about so 20 minutes about yeah, 20 minute long chase through this city and which is just one of the funniest things now we should mention one thing that sets it off is that uh the uh uh mary is her name right the his uh yeah. his beloved um he's got a mary mary he's got a mary mary and the way he finds that out is because uh mary's friend or maybe her mom or her sister or something i didn't catch the exact relationship uh convinces her to give uh to give james shannon a second chance to say like listen this is a insanely bizarre situation i think i think uh uh you should you should rethink this and so she does and so sends a letter by way of uh of her servant who is as we mentioned before the character of blackface which is just frustrating again that that's even a thing but it is what happens and so sends him to uh james shannon and it takes a while but eventually he gets the letter and realizes christ i've got to get back home i've got to get married to mary you know and what begins is this is this huge chase and it goes through the city streets uh <laughs> like into the wild one of, one of my favorite bits is that uh Buster Keaton is walking home and it's this it's this long shot where we're looking at him walking down the street and then we see way in the background a huge crowd come in and we know oh that's an angry mob of brides and it takes him a long time to realize it and just waiting for the moment of realization is like 80% of the fun just waiting and, for the moment when Buster Keaton turns around and sees a swarm of wedding gown clad women just sprinting his way and then yeah, when he gets chased more, yeah it's an even more ambitious version of cops his uh, short film <laughs> where it's like the same concept but like not as many people but you really see the difference when like the, like first of all they're like throwing bricks at him yeah. And like there's even people in the back of the crowd <laughs> throwing bricks at like each other. Like clearly, like the bricks oh, really? are not gonna reach from ladies. Like <laughs> but even Gosh. like my, one of my favorite shots in the whole thing, it's it's a little bit earlier, is when they go through the football field. Yeah. And yeah. it's like absolute pandemonium. <laughs> and just when you think it's over and you're watching this and it's hilarious, 
the punchline really is all the stretchers coming out. Yeah. For the <laughs> it's like, it's just such comedy. Like I, I we're, we're going on and on about this movie, but like people, if you have not seen seven chances and you're still listening to this, first of all, interesting. Second of all, yes. <laughs> go watch this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Relatively easy to find. It's a short watch. It's 57 minutes. It's, a hell of a time in spite of some uh, incredibly poorly aged parts that we've touched on before. Yeah. Uh, those are in there. The those are obnoxious. But yeah, that's you see the difference between this and like it's modern um, successor, which like they tried to make a movie with the same sort of concept with the brides chasing in uh, the mm-hmm. 1999 film, uh, the bachelor. Did you ever see the bachelor, Sam? I did not actually. No. It was, it, well, it came out the year it was, you were born. So I understand it's uh, Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> And uh, I saw this movie when I was, (laughs) yeah, but it's like, uh, it's the same concept. Like clearly it's like trying to riff off of it and it's, it's not even close, close to as good as seven. Like it it is unbelievably weak by comparison. A lot of that is the way that Buster Keaton is so good at running. Yeah. It's like anybody, whenever I hear people say like Tom Cruise is good at running in movies. I'm like, get out of here. (laughs) You haven't seen I don't need it. He, he's he's maybe a quarter or a fraction of Buster Keaton when it comes to running. Yeah, I concur entirely. There are there are a few things that Buster Keaton is very specifically good at. One, falling down. Look at the way Buster Keaton falls down. Oh, yeah. And just his entire body goes completely limp. And he always like he never lands on one spot for more than like a nanosecond. He always does all this rolling around and eventually somehow inexplicably lands on his feet again. And it's really just fantastic to see. There's one scene a little bit later in seven chances where uh, he tumbles down a cliff and the way he like does like front flips down the cliff basically is one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen. It is it's like a triple somersault. It's a triple <laughs> it's somersault down a hill. It's crazy. And that's before the boulders. And yeah, what one thing I wanted to mention really quickly is the scene with the bricks you mentioned. Uh, the, the funniest part that you didn't even mention is that the they're getting the bricks from a building under construction. There's literally a carpenter there laying bricks down and they're coming by and taking off the bricks that he's just mortared to each other to the point where the crowd, the swarm passes by and the wall that the guy was working on is completely gone. And you get the sense that he's just makes this exclamation. Like, why does this happen to me every time? I can't believe it. Uh, It's just funny to project you know, personality out of these characters when they only get a moment on screen. But yeah, so uh, Buster Keaton knows I've got to get home. I know I'll take a shortcut through like, what is it like a wheat field or something? And uh, and also a train yard. A train gets lifted by a crane. It's like we we could be here all day just going yeah. through just set. It's like set piece after set piece, and some of it was done through reshoots because the Boulder scene you mentioned. They originally that wasn't part of the script, but they were showing in because some like rocks accidentally fell down and looked like they were hitting him. It like generated a ton of laughs. They decided to go back and shoot like that whole boulder scene. And that's a big reason why the boulder scene goes on and on. It's (laughs) because clearly they wanted to get their money's worth, I suppose. Yeah, maybe they were trying to stretch it out to a little bit longer of a movie, but what we may never know. Uh, one one funny thing I also love is there's one part where uh, he tries to like hail a cab or something to get back home, gets in the car and then immediately jumps out. And we realize there was one of the, the one of the gypped brides yeah. already in that car. <laughs> so he can't go he, anywhere. Yeah. 
he holds without... on to a tire of a car that like <laughs> speeds off, which is funny because there's another movie he's in. I forget which one it was, but he tries to do that. But then the car goes off without him because the wheel wasn't really part of the car. Do you remember uh, that movie? I oh, can't remember which I, one that was. I remember seeing the set piece. I can't remember which one is specifically. Yeah, from. I can't remember either. It, it, this, he like turns around a sign that says vulcanizing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But in this movie, he actually does it. But then there's an, a literal car crash, and yeah. like the the cut is so fast. But like I, we didn't get a chance to mention this earlier. But what I, one thing I really love about silent movies as well is that the camera speeds up and slows down to match both the music and the visual comedy. So you mm-hmm. always get like exactly what I think the director planned for the comedic timing, which just makes it even funnier. Is because yeah. you know you're in the hands of somebody whose comedic <laughs> timing is better than yours. Yeah. <laughs> and so like that scene in particular is like right when it like cuts and he falls it's like it's so ridiculous but like i don't it's like even little mistakes like when he's on the tree and it breaks right like it's technically a a, a pretty noticeable cut it's really noticeable (laughs) but you know you could forgive it pretty easily because like he gets up so fast that it's just like i don't know it it plays into the energy and the frantic mania of the movie so it's i don't think it's uh it's a flaw necessarily yeah. And there's never a down moment in this climax either. One of the in that car crash you just mentioned, he's hanging onto the back of the into the, onto the back of the car. The car hits another car and the camera cuts and we realize they're running into like a cable car or a streetcar or something full of brides that have hijacked the cable car and they all start they are, swerving out and chasing after the they guy. They are they are so mad at this guy. It they're is so- absolutely they're so devoted. I almost wonder what happens to them because we never really find out. <laughs> I guess they're still they're trying not, to find yeah. Buster Keaton. We, we so, know they're not pure evil funny. because at one point, at one point, they think they killed him because they orchestrated the crane pulling him to drop him where a train just went, and then they all start <laughs> crying. But then they see yeah. him and start running after him again. They just want to yeah, know what. They just want to know what the hell's going on. Why did you ask us to come here, and why are you now fleeing from all of us frantically? I. I can imagine they'd be a little bit confused and wanting to understand what happens. But yeah, we we're we got to wind down here. But this boulder scene, which if there's anything that this movie is very specifically iconic for, it's this boulder scene where Buster Keaton takes a tumble down a cliff, hits some little pebbles that get dislodged from wherever they are and start rolling down the hill. They hit some bigger rocks and bigger rocks and it it devolves into a full-scale rock slide that like is knocking over trees and stuff and god knows what else kind of damage and it's very clear you mentioned that this was reshot afterwards it's very clear that they just made a bunch of huge paper mache boulders they do not they look really out of place with the landscape but that almost makes it even funnier to think that just the universe is against michael uh i almost said michael keaton against buster keaton at this point and will do anything to just to just conjure boulders out of thin air just for the purpose that they will be able to roll down this hill after like nature itself is fighting back we should mention that he actually disliked this movie but he really liked that scene i think it's of of his opinion that it's because of this scene that he actually thinks the movie is salvaged otherwise it doesn't work and he almost ended it like around that point like originally yeah. the ending was just going to be him running away and like we never get a resolution. <laughs> yeah. Um, which would almost be funnier, but I like the resolution they ultimately have, which is he finally, yeah. he gets to the house. It's been, it's been a day, uh, gets to the house. They're ready to get married. Mary's completely gung ho about it. And, uh, they look at they Buster Keaton looks at a, looks at his watch and realizes I'm too late. It's after seven. And by the way, 
I just want to bring up, I, I, I know there's not an answer for this. Who's enforcing this stipulation? Like, what does it matter if it's 701? Like, where, like, are they going to, I just, I just wonder how this actually is, is being implemented. This stipulation. I I think, I think we're working on the honor system. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, they are lawyers, so I would imagine, I, I guess it makes sense that they would want to be true to their word when it comes to getting $7 million or not. Well, but regardless, his lawyer is a lawyer, but I think it's it's a brokerage firm, to be specific. Did I say lawyer? I, I meant to say brokerage firm, yeah. Um, and yeah, so they're completely, they're completely despondent. And there's this moment where they might have to accept, like, listen, we tried, we went through a lot, like we went through a lot, but... Maybe we'll just we're just gonna have to do without the money. And then Buster Keaton remembers. Wait a second, my watch is broken. It's not. Yeah, it's yeah. not actually seven o'clock. Sees a clock tower way off in the distance. I wonder how the watch was broken to make it say a later time. But that's well, a, they, that's well, a detail. Of, it doesn't matter. They play into it a bit, right? Where he goes to the watchman's shop and everything, and clearly <laughs> he's like unlucky with time itself. But yeah. I think I think it's worth pointing out that we sort of learn like what his real motivations are in this scene why he wants the money so badly. And it's it's not because he wants to be rich. He seems, it it pl- uh, plays into why he has, has trouble expressing himself to Mary. It's because he, de- he thinks he doesn't deserve her. And yeah. the movie is sort of saying like, it, it's not that he wants to, to marry her and he's out of time. It's that without the money, he doesn't think that he can provide for her. He doesn't want to marry her, be with somebody just to dump all of his problems on her. Yeah. So that that plays into why he's so uh, despondent about it. And you can sort of look at that and be like, well, the, the midsection of the movie, he's just doing it to save the firm. The only reason he decides that he needs to do the marriage thing at all, because he just wants to be with Mary, is for his his best friend, yeah. um, his partner. He's like, we need this money. It's going to say so he does it for somebody else. And I think that's what makes this movie kind of work is they always find a way to tie it back to. He does have pure motivations and it, you can sort of like worry about the movie really believing that at certain times but uh, i think this this ending is what saves that and real quick i'll say the whole the thing i i do love about this movie that i think is timeless is that it is a wonderful metaphor for just the anxiety of marriage and how it feels like you feel like there's a deadline to get married at a certain time in your life back then 27 was pretty old to get married and there's this like dichotomy of like you know, you, you try and you try the person you really want to be with. Um, there's a misunderstanding and it doesn't work out. And then you go from person to person and, and everything, nothing works. And then like, it's just sort of like a funny thing, but then all of a sudden everybody wants to, it, it's just that anxiety of like marriage, just being such a, just a, a joke, unless it's with the right person. That's what I think lands with this movie. That's where I think like some people don't give Buster Keaton enough credit for understanding or infusing. Like there is real heart in his comedies oh, it's yeah. just not the political point and you sort of have to like really pay attention to get it it's not like you know it, it it's not in your face about it which i appreciate i think that it is there for you to find if you want that in your movie yeah yeah that's a that's a fantastic point i haven't i hadn't really thought about that i think uh i mentioned to you already my favorite buster keaton movie is steamboat bill jr from 1928 uh that movie is hilarious it's iconic but at its heart it's a movie about a son trying to live up to his father and i think that's that's what's really at the heart of it that's what's driving the whole thing and so it makes 
all the comedy around it, it sort of infuses it with meaning. Whereas I think if you want to compare to someone like Charlie Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin kind of starts with the meaning and then just sort of extrapolates the comedy from there. I think Buster Keaton works in the opposite, uh, in the opposite procedure. So I think that's, that's the reason why uh, a lot of people will say that Buster Keaton is funnier than Charlie Chaplin, which he is. Uh, Although not, not as, not as outwardly melodramatic, you know? Exactly. Chaplin is more likely to move you, right? Yes. Like he's more he's more likely to bring a crowd to some sort of like narrative catharsis or to make them rethink something or like he he's not like it's not that he's a deep thinker necessarily. It's just it's the melodrama. I think that is the right word. Um he's just so good at. And that's just not part of what Keaton does. It's not his style and you know, it's great that we have both uh comedic actor directors because that is sort of what makes them special in their own right yeah absolutely charlie chaplin is okay with going for long periods of time without having any uh any visual humor and i think that makes for a lot of strong stories but buster keaton also knows the value of having a good laugh and i think seven chances has quite a few of them wouldn't you say I I think that is the the case. I think it yeah. is. Um, I, and I think you know. I, I do you think? I, I'm curious what you think about this. What I think that uh, there there are two movies that he did that he also wrote, and a lot of people credit them as the best ones he did, and that's Go West and The General. So would you say that this film? Do you think that part of the reason it's not quite at the level, at least for a lot of people? is because he didn't write it or do you think that it's it's other things like this this movie screenplay is like a bunch of people i forget off the top of my head but you know people he had collaborated with before and everything but like you did mention that like it seems at some points like his heart's not really in the narrative yeah. um, but do you think it's just different when it comes to the general which is tends to be people's favorites because you do really like uh steamboat bill which is also you know fantastic but i don't think he wrote that either right? yeah i don't think so yeah, so. I think that might certainly be part of it. Just, just not, not as much passion. Of course, uh, it helps that we know all the uh, behind the scenes objections that Buster Keaton may have had. Uh, he did. Oh, he did co-direct. I think one of the screenwriters for um, Seven Chances was the co-director and maybe co-writer of the general. So who knows? It's so gray back then. <laughs> no yeah. Pun intended. Uh, you know. <laughs> whatever. Yeah, it's it. The point is that uh, it's what we have, and it's quite good. Again, with reservations, which we mentioned, uh, but this is this is something really special. And if you're looking for an introduction to silent cinema, as we mentioned before, this and really any other Buster Keaton movie, again, of varying qualities, not a bad place to start at all. Again, we mentioned some of our favorites. There are plenty others. Uh, even if you if you even want to start with some of the shorts, those are good too. I recommend One Week. That is one of the funniest concepts for us for a comedic short ever uh as as well as many others oh, that's the one where he's the groom right that's the one where he's the groom and they have a house kit and they try to build it yeah, and it's yeah. and it goes really badly but it all works out in the end not unlike seven chances so i think that's a good one to start with as well it's like the yeah because i remember the build it yourself houses from uh <laughs> yeah yeah people People who've uh, played the game Red Dead Redemption 2, I remember playing that game. There was a whole thing in that where you build a house. And I remember thinking of uh, Buster Keaton, but I couldn't remember which thing it was. And I guess it was this short film, huh? Yeah, it was One Week is the title. Uh, 
So check Fantastic. that one out. I'm sure it's very easy to find. John, I've had a good time talking about uh, Seven yeah. Chances. It was good to it was good to get back to the silent era. I think we covered a lot of ground here, and I look forward to covering even more ground in the future. Uh, oh perhaps gosh, a bit more dramatic. Been... The the day may come when we get to one of the really oh, yes. heavy silent melodramas. Uh, um, a melodramatic. Yeah, like a silent romance would be a ton of fun. Um, mm-hmm. I have a lot of favorites for those. There's a lot of actresses to take into consideration who really define this era. So yep. uh, that's that's got to come up eventually. And I think the the new expansion of the show will help bring that about sooner than it probably would have otherwise. Um, yes. So when's the next extra milestone coming out, Sam? Uh, John, I will tell you, the next extra milestone, if all goes according to plan, knock on wood, because... Apparently, that's a thing. Uh, next week, a week from now, uh, it will be myself and veteran of, anyway, that's all I got, Jason Reed. We were going what? to be reuniting Jason, Jason, Jason Reed. Of the Jason movies, Jason? <laughs> the, not quite, but you're. But I like where your head is at. No, this is my my good friend Jason, who did. Uh, anyway, that's all I got with myself and Anthony Battaglia for uh, quite some time back in 2018. We're going to be reuniting, and we are going to be talking about a very fascinating triple feature that I cannot wait to dive into. We're going to be talking about John Luc Godard's Breathless. We're going to be talking about uh, Georges Franju's. Eyes Without a Face, which we almost talked about several months ago, yeah. but it was it was also eligible for a different uh, for the month of March as well. So we're going to be talking about that and Dario Argento's Deep Red, which I have not seen and I'm looking forward to. So by all means, if you want to check those movies out before next week, or if you just want to go in blind, uh, we won't be diving headlong into the plot for all three of those. Uh, but by all means. Uh, feel free to watch along with us. We're going to have a lot of fun. I can't wait for that episode. And then the week after that, we, uh, y- uh, you and I, and presumably Will Ashton, uh, are going to be talking about uh, Rebecca, Alfred Hitchcock's Best Picture winning Rebecca, and Jacques Becker's prison movie, Le True, which I dearly oh. love. Yes, can't so wait. We got a lot on our plate. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I've, triple milestone. That's going to be, it's going to be big. But if anyone can do it, I think it's you and Jason. I think so too. Jason's really looking forward to doing it again, as am I. John, thank you for joining me to talk about Seven Chances. Uh, thank you for helping fill this uh, fill this gap again. I mean, I, I could have gotten anyone, really. But very true. Uh, I'm glad that but hey, I, won. I had to cancel. You know, I had I was going to go to this church. Apparently, I was going to be able to marry this person for seven million dollars, but uh, I decided to help you out instead, Sam. So you're welcome. It, it, it's like the third next best thing. So I think it caught it. It could have gone a lot worse, but I'm glad that we had this time nonetheless. Uh, and I say we sign off until the next extra milestone from the internet, Colorado. I'm Sam Noland. From the Internet California, I'm John Negroni. And we'll see you next time.